This is the first Sunday of Advent. Traditionally, in liturgical churches, the minister or the priest wears blue vestments. So I thought to keep Water's Edge in touch with liturgical churches, I'd wear a blue sweater. So it's not terribly ecclesiastical, but uh, it does make a, an attempt to connect. Um, the first Sunday of Advent, I was saying in the early service, it seems like we just celebrated Thanksgiving three days ago. and Indeed, we did. Uh, things seem to come faster and faster these days. I think that's part of growing older. It seems to me at times that they collect the trash every three days, but indeed it's, it's every week. Uh, but the same goes for, uh, for Advent. It seems that uh, Christmas comes very, very quickly these days. Probably for a kid, it wouldn't be the case. But nevertheless, Advent is one of the most important festivals in the history of the church. Uh, there was a, a great theologian named Athanasius who said, you know, I think Advent is more important than Easter. Now, most priests, most uh, church historians, etc., would say Easter is the highlight of the church year. Athanasius said... If there hadn't been an Advent, there wouldn't be an Easter. And so really, this is the time when Christians should come together. And in Advent, in the early church at least, uh, there was a great deal of uh, fasting. We don't follow that tradition. Uh, we are more celebratory. Today, though, we look back at the hope of the coming Messiah. It's a, a very important idea for us today because... There are parts of our world in which Christians are having a hard time hoping for deliverance. Uh, there's a website which tracks the, the nine most difficult countries in which to be a Christian. Places where persecution of various kinds is common. And those would be, you can probably think of them from reading the paper, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Saudi Arabia... Kenya, Somalia, India, Burma, and North Korea. Other places as well, but those places especially, we should keep in our prayers for brothers and sisters in Christ, for children who are exploited and dealt with terribly. Um, we live in a broken world. We're going to begin with uh, the story of the fall this morning and what happens in that story is the image of God in humans, which was present in the beginning in a beautiful way, gets distorted by sin. And that distortion leads to the expressions of various kinds of evil in our world. But as we're going to see, even in that early mention of uh, sin coming into the world, there's also the message of hope. That God is active in our lives to save us from sin and to give us hope. And I think it's fascinating when you read about God's work of hope, how often that's connected with babies. Advent is a time about babies. And it didn't just happen because of Christ. Really, Advent and the promises that Advent was coming oftentimes have to do with birth expectation of great things. Every mother in this room who has carried a child, every couple 
who have longed for that child to be born knows what it was like for those nine months to wait and expect and to wonder, what is she going to be like? What characteristics, what hair color, what talents? I went through that with two daughters, and now I'm getting to do it again with a a grandson who's about to be born, well, February. Um, But we see sonograms of him posted on the fridge. And, you know, you can actually see his little profile. You can see his chest developing. My daughter, who's a singer, said, I'm absolutely sure he's going to be a tenor from his bone structure and and things. Uh, I'm hoping for an Anglo-Saxon scholar, but you never know. (laughs) We all have expectations. And uh, it's expectations which really give hope. Hope to parents who are waiting for a child and... In the Bible, we're going to find that expectations of a child being born are critical to the process of God supporting his people and saying, you know, help is on the way. This isn't the end of the game. Now, the first glimmer of hope comes to us in Genesis 3.15. This is called, by the way, the Proto-Evangelium. Let's look at it. I will read it as you follow along. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Irenaeus, a a great bishop in Lyon, southern France, Um, called this the beginning of the gospel, the first record of the good news. And it comes in God's curse of the serpent in the garden. God has some things to say to Adam and Eve. He also talks to the serpent pretty directly. And here he says, I'm going to put anger and confusion and enmity between you and your offspring and hers. Now, of course, thinking of that prophetically, we think that to a woman, eventually, the Messiah is going to be born. And that Messiah is the one who's going to crush the head of Satan. And you're going to strike his heel. You'll you'll wound him, but it won't be permanent. It'll be a temporary ailment that he'll recover from and be raised from the dead. But he is going to finish you off at the cross. Now, Satan still has some dominion in this world. But really, in terms of his ultimate power, the the message is clear to him. And that is that there is no more um, dominion that he's going to have. Christ is going to win through. This is called the the gospel in the very beginning. Um, Now, I I should tell you before we get going much farther that there are many passages I'd like to deal with, but they happen to be passages reserved by other people who are preaching Advent sermons in the next three weeks, one of whom is my wife. And so, uh, you know, I'd like to get into Luke and to Matthew, but I'm going to bypass those just as... uh, An important negotiation tactic. Um, (laughs) You know, speaking of 
people having babies. Um, as, at least after Abraham, uh, rabbis tell us that every Jewish maiden who was growing up uh, expected that she might be the one who gave birth to Messiah. Uh, they didn't understand, like we do, this side of the cross and the birth of Christ, that there would be a virgin birth. I know Isaiah 7.14 clearly states that, but they thought the baby would be born in a natural way. So down through the years, expecting to be married and perhaps blessed by giving birth to the Messiah. We see that reflected in, in Mary when, when she is told by the angel, um, you are going to bear he who is the Messiah. She responds and says, how can this be? I've not known a man. She expects that Messiah will come through a natural childbirth. They didn't have a clear understanding of the idea of a virgin birth. That's in the text, but it wasn't part of the tradition. And um, every Jewish girl uh, who was righteous and, and uh, godly would expect that maybe she would be chosen by God to bring the deliverer into the world. And uh, that is a marvelous thing to think about. And the, the gospel goes forth. Um, the second reiteration of God's promise comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Abram is a one who's going to be called Abraham. And the time frame here is about 2000 BC. By the way, we don't know when the earlier promise was given. The dates um, of the beginnings are very, very hard to understand. But we can historically correlate Abram to about 2100 or 2000 BC. And that, as we're going to see, is, is helpful when we see how the promises are reiterated. Um, in this case, God says to Abram, I want you to leave your land and go to a new land. Here's, oh, went too fast. Here's the text. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. This is called the Abrahamic covenant. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. By the way, that last phrase is once again an echo of the gospel. Uh, Abraham, I'm calling you. You're going to have children. And those children are going to have children. And down through the ages, one is going to come who's going to bless all people through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So he's got this promise, and the promise is that he is going to be the father of a great nation. And he's going to be given a place to live, a land. But years pass by, and there's no son born. Chapter 15. Look up at the sky. Abraham complained to God, you know, God, you made this promise, this hope that I would have a child, and through this child, the world will be blessed. But 
uh, time has gone by and I'm getting up there. And um, God takes him outside on a starry night and says, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. But once again, God made the promise, but Abraham had to wait. And I think one of the hardest things about hoping is the fact that we have to keep waiting. God promises things and he comes through, but we never know the timing. Abraham um, is 100 years old when God finally fulfills his promise of a son. And he has taken steps to intervene. He has uh, had a child with a surrogate. In those days, you could use your maiden. Your, if a woman wasn't able to conceive, she could have her servant conceive for her. And that would be her child. Um, and uh, God tells him, no, that's not going to be the one through whom your lineage passes. But actually, uh, you're going to conceive with Sarah, who's 90, and Isaac will be born. When the author of Hebrews retells this story, He's a little bit rude, I think, in describing Abram as good as dead. <laughs> and Abraham was good as dead. Uh, a little harsh. I'm a little sensitive when people talk about people uh, getting older and being as good as dead. Obviously, he was able to uh, handle it with God's help. And they conceived a baby, and that baby becomes the fulfillment of the hope here. Um, so, we have the the clarity beginning to be amplified here. Uh, the promise was originally given. Now we know it's coming through Abraham. And this is called the doctrine of progressive revelation. And that is that whenever there's something that is important, as the Bible moves forward in time, it becomes clearer and clearer. More details are added. So... God is going to promise that through a woman, salvation will come. Now he promises Abraham, your children will bless the world. And now we move forward to David and 1 Chronicles 17. Now David is a child of the tribe of Judah. Abraham's son Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and those sons each had the tribes of, of Israel. And Judah was the tribe through which the Messiah was going to come. And that becomes clear in a promise made to David. Once again, childbirth is involved. The time frame, a thousand years later, about 1000 B.C., David is told by Nathan the prophet that he will have a son. I was named after Nathan, so he's a special character in the Bible that I like. A very gutsy prophet, willing to go up to the king and said, you know, you sinned. And unless you uh, deal with that sin, it's going to corrupt your whole life. And in fact, David denies it. And he says, David, you are the man. Thou art the man. You sinned. Well, in this case, Nathan is delivering good news to him. And, and that is that he's going to have a son with Bathsheba. And that son is going to be king. Um, David wants to know from God if he should build the temple. And God says, no, you shouldn't build the temple because you were a man of war. 
you were a man of, you know, violence. And the temple should be built by someone who is not in that category. But you're going to have a son. But then as he goes on, the text um, amplifies that promise. I will be his father, God says, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor, that was Saul. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne shall be established forever. Now, clearly, uh, this is not all referring to Solomon. Uh, prophets oftentimes can see the short range and the long range in terms of prophecy. And indeed, he sees Solomon, and Solomon is going to be the successor to David and a very fine successful king in many ways, he's going to take Israel to its dramatic heights in terms of a political entity. Israel was never as strong before or after Solomon. He enriches Israel greatly and increases it in size. Uh, he builds the temple. He is a renowned for his wisdom. He has a problem with women, and this is often an issue with some of the great leaders of God's uh, program uh, and and that really sets him back in many ways but obviously the last part of this promise does not apply to Solomon but to a future son of David and I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever his throne shall be established forever that's not a reference to Solomon that's a reference to Jesus who's going to come and be the Messiah and you remember that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, riding on the colt of an ass. Um, the people called out to him, Hosanna, son of David. So they acknowledged the fact that uh, the Messiah was coming. And one of the ways they knew he was the right one is that he was related to David. So now we come to the classic passage, and that is uh, the Emmanuel God with us, uh, a wonderful text, the hope that is delivered by the prophet Isaiah. Once again, this is uh, 300 years later, 700 BC, and Isaiah is wanting to add more clarity to the hope. There's hope that God is going to deliver us from sin and from evil and from violence through a Savior. And this Savior now we know more about. He is going to be God actually with us in the flesh. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, prophecy here, he will honor Galilee of the nations. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. By the way, Galilee was looked down upon by Israel over the generations. Galilee was an area where a lot of Gentiles had been imported by various rulers, including Alexander the Great. Um, and so the Jews were living in close proximity to Gentiles, and um, they didn't like that very well because there was cultural influence and bias, etc., and people looked down upon Galilee from Jerusalem's perspective. 
The Galileans, by the way, had a unique dialect which could easily be identified by somebody from the South. You know, we have areas in our country where people have distinct dialects, maybe Appalachia or parts of the South, and, and um, there's a, tend, a tendency to have a bias against them and to think that they are uncultured and uneducated. That's not at all true, but there was a dramatic bias against uh, Galilee uh, in, in Jewish culture. There were no great universities or the equivalent of that in Galilee. People spoke with this countrified accent. Now that's the accent Christ is going to have. He grows up in Galilee. He becomes a prophet there. He would have spoken Aramaic and Hebrew, but with a slightly Galilean accent. So that identified him to some degree. And it identified probably some of his disciples as well. But here... The message is, he humbled the land of Zebulun, but in the future, he will honor Galilee by the nations, by the way of the sea and beyond the Jordan. I'm going to add to that. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness, the light has dawned. And you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when dividing their plunder. The land that was often scorned is going to be the home of the prophet who is acknowledged as the Messiah. And then the wonderful words, which we know so well from the Messiah, musical, Handel's Messiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A child will be called these names. And here we have the, the concept of God incarnate. God is going to live among us to bring us salvation. And he's going to have rightfully these names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. One of the great controversies of the early church is, was Christ equivalent to God? And, of course, the orthodox position is he is, very God of very God, the only begotten Son of God, co-eternal, co-equal in every way. And he finishes off by saying, the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So, we have now even more clarity on who our hope rests in. He is Christ who is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. His reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So, finally, we come to First Peter passage read by Melinda, and of course we realize that in the next three weeks we're going to get the story on the birth of Christ and all the details around that and Mary and Joseph and uh, Anna and all the people involved. But now we're, we're moving to 1 Peter, and, and Peter would be 1st century, maybe 40, maybe 50 A.D., um, and he is... Here, reflecting on Messiah, 
in terms of his ongoing ministry and the fact that he is coming back again. He is going to not only come once as he did as a baby, but he's going to come again as a victorious risen savior. And the time frame, first century, Peter says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Because of the resurrection, because Christ defeated death, the promise to us is that we shall too. Death will not be the end for us. As we grow older, we can look forward to a new body and an eternity spent with the fellowship of saints in heaven. It's part of our creed. It's clearly taught in scripture. To an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That is what Christ has done for us in terms of his accomplished work. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. But just like it was hard for Abraham to wait, it's hard for us to wait sometimes as um, life becomes difficult, challenges emerge. Sometimes it's easy for us to lose hope and to become overly discouraged and to even have doubts about God's promises. But Peter here reminds us that in those times we have to keep our focus on Christ and the fact that people have always hoped and trusted and waited. In all this, you are you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in the praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So salvation is coming and victory through Christ through, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, this is the ideal. This is what we should experience when we are in tune with God. But at times we get shifted out of that place and we get discouraged. We don't see how uh, our lives are really being fulfilled in these glorious ways. And I think it's important to remember that we have limited scope. We don't have the full picture. When I was a kid, my mother used to make needlepoint uh, images. Uh, if you don't know what needlepoint is, it's a long process. Uh, and it's putting yarn into small little pockets in a pattern. Uh, not pockets, but little... Mm, Karen would know what to call these. Holes. Yeah, that's good. Uh, anyway, my mother would work on these needlepoint creations and give them away to people. 
and they became precious uh, possessions of ours. But uh, she would labor for maybe six months. And I would, as a teenage boy, I would say, now, now mom, how many hours do you have invested in that? You know, and, and what, what real good is it going to be? Well, I like to do it, Nate, and uh, I don't see any harm in it. It's a good hobby. And um, now I just treasure those things because they're so beautiful and, and they, they really bring a lot of joy to my heart. Uh, have you ever looked at the bottom side of a needlepoint? It, it is very strange. It's not at all like the beautiful image on the top. The bottom is a, a chaos of colors and loose yarn. Um, you can't see any pattern there. The pattern is only seen from the top. Well, it helps me when going through times like these described, times when I kind of lose hope and lose faith, to realize that we're only getting the bottom side of the picture. Uh, God, who's in charge of the picture, who's weaving it together into something that's beautiful, something that's going to be enjoyed by us forever, he's the one who can see the pattern beautifully. And I think a time is going to come when we will look back on those times of trial and testing, and we'll be able to see and rejoice in the fact that, yes, God, you were wise in letting me go through that because it really has made a difference and it really has been part of my development as your child. So that, I think, is uh, the real message of Advent, that, that we need to sustain hope. We need to pray for those who are in distress. We need to keep the idea of expectation front and center in our minds. And when things don't go well for us, when things are difficult and we become discouraged and even doubt that God is in charge. That is when we need to call upon him and express our faith and say, you know, even though I don't see you, I believe in you and trust that he has the full pattern in mind and that we will one day see that. I think that's what Christian faith really is about. Living a life based on trust in a God who's revealed himself again and again through the years. And that should really encourage us as we head into the wonderful season of Advent, expecting God to do great things. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have been so patient with us, your children. We thank you for the way you work in our lives, even in times which are trying, even in times when we fail. You have this unique ability to bring good out of that which isn't good and to restore that which we have lost and to give us new hope. We thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for each other and how we can support one another in this Advent season. In Christ's name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.